Blog Talk Radio. Happy Friday, everybody. Welcome to the Michael Cutler Hour. I am your host, Michael Cutler. It is Friday the 13th. That's right, Friday the 13th, 2019. Happy Friday. Um, Kind of a somber Friday, actually. I'm still recuperating from the fact that two days ago, we acknowledged the 18th anniversary of the terror attacks of 9-11. I thank you so much for joining me. Uh, you know, I've been a man on a mission ever since the day of that attack, trying to provide my perspectives based on real-world experience as an immigration agent to as many of our fellow Americans and our alleged leaders as possible. Uh, our immigration laws <clears throat> over time have evolved to the point where today they are completely, utterly, and appropriately, I might add, blind about what I call superficial factors race, religion, ethnicity. The laws are about keeping out aliens who pose a threat to public safety, public health, national security, and the livelihoods of Americans. There's nothing unreasonable about it. We're careful about the folks that we invite into our homes. When you rent an apartment in a a luxury apartment or maybe a not-so-luxurious apartment, There were generally people at the front desk to help uh, keep vagrants out, keep people out who might be going door-to-door selling nonsense or whatever. It's about providing a secure, safe environment for the inhabitants of that apartment building, that condominium, and so forth. When you go into corporate headquarters, there's always a front desk with security officers. Certainly when you go into federal, state, or local government buildings, there are law enforcement officers on duty to protect the people who work in that facility. There is absolutely no reason why a country should be less diligent about protecting the people who live and and work and visit within the confines of that nation's borders than we are about keeping bad guys and problematic individuals out of housing and corporate offices and so forth. And that's what our immigration laws are about, but you would never know it if you listen to the politicians from, frankly, both political parties, but the Democrats more so of late than uh, the Republicans. So my program is all about trying to provide the information that the mainstream media, for a host of reasons, is not willing to provide. we got to set the record straight. We live in perilous times, and there have been more terror attacks since 9-11 not just in the United States, but around the world. Certainly the all clear has not sounded. We have additional problems with a massive influx of narcotics, of gangs, fugitives from justice, and, of course, the ever-present threat of, ter- present threat of terrorists. Last night, or yesterday afternoon, rather, I had lunch with a friend that I wish I didn't know. Now, that might sound crazy to you. Why in the world is Mike going out having lunch with a friend that he wished he didn't know. Well, my friend, his name is Bruce DeSalle. His son-in-law was killed on 9-11. Bruce is a former New York City police officer. His son-in-law's father was a battalion chief of the fire department of the city of New York at the time that he was in the towers at the World Trade Center. He had apparently been promoted, was on his way out of the building in an elevator, and as close as the investigators could determine, He was in the elevator when the towers were struck by the airplane, and he was obliterated. Young man in his 20s. Heartbreaking story, one of thousands of such stories. And and Bruce and I sat for several hours um, sharing each other's company, talking about the tragedies, and sharing our worries and our concerns for where we are today. We're not safer. If anything, we are at greater risk today than we were on September the 10th, 2001. And and so I I just want to begin by telling you that although I know I spoke about 9-11 last week, there's a little bit of unfinished business. There have been more developments. 
but I, I want everybody to please go to Front Page Magazine, for starters, if you haven't done so already, and read my article that was published on September 11th. And the title of my article was 18 Years After 9-11, The Threat of Terror Attacks Continues. Looking back to 1998, the dots were connected and then ignored. One of the things that Diane Feinstein warned about was the entry of students from foreign countries who were coming to the United States and the West from the Middle East and other countries that, that sponsored terrorism to acquire necessary skills so they could build weapons of mass destruction. I didn't even know it until I read her testimony from 1998. The hearing was about the um, fifth anniversary of the bombing at the Trade Center back in 93. And it turns out, if you remember, our military was charged with going into Iraq after 9-11 to look for a nuclear weapons program that supposedly was being put together by Saddam Hussein. They never found the evidence of the nuclear program. But it turned out that in 1991, the nuclear inspections team from the U.N., according to, I believe it was a Washington Post article, found paperwork that indicated that um, the director of the nuclear weapons program in Iraq had gotten his Ph.D. in nuclear engineering in Michigan State University here in the United States. Dr. Germ, a woman who was putting together a biological warfare program, studied biology in England and then went back to her country to put together biological weapons. We are educating the people who want to kill us. And what's so astonishing is that we keep on hearing all about how we need to bring in all these foreign students. Uh, Mitt Romney said, oh, once we educate these kids, we ought to staple green cards onto their diplomas so that they don't go halfway across the world when they get their degrees and they could stay in America and help America. I had a go around with Ted Cruz back in 2013. We both spoke at an event in Washington. Um, I was pleased to join uh, Senator, then Senator Jeff Sessions there and other members of Congress. But I, I, I went up to Ted Cruz and I said, Senator, my name is Mike Cutler. And he said, Mr. Cutler, I recognized you. How are you? And we shook hands and I gave him my business card. And I said, I have a question for you because it, it's really disturbing me. He said, what's the problem? I said, you keep on making the point, and I agree with you that we need to secure the border, but you keep then saying that we need to bring in to the United States the world's best and brightest so that we can lead. Yes, if you're talking about the equivalent of Albert Einstein um, or Elon Musk today, you know, he's here, certainly an immigrant, legal immigrant, I agree with you. But when you talk about a massive influx of hundreds of thousands of foreign programmers, engineers, scientists, and technicians, these aren't exceptional people. The only thing exceptional about them is their willingness to work for exceptionally low wages under exceptionally adverse conditions. I said, for the most part, where I come from, we have a name for the world's best and brightest. We call them Americans. And Ted Cruz lit up like the 4th of July and wound up pushing me. It got real ugly. Why in the world do we keep hearing this nonsense about bringing in the world's best and brightest? Is there something defective about Americans? Americans went to the moon 50 years ago with technology that made their computers look like an abacus compared to what we now have today. But we did it repeatedly and safely. I got to meet Jim Lovell, Dave Scott, Jim McDivitt. I have a photo. I'm looking at it right now hanging on the wall with Gene Kranz, who was flight director for America's manned space program. Mercury, Gemini, Apollo, the space shuttle, we did that. We sent spacecraft out of the solar system in the 70s. The Voyager space probes are still transmitting data, and they've surpassed the heliopause. It takes over a day for the radio signal to reach the Earth, so it's a two-day round trip or more. I think maybe we're up to 30 hours. I've, I've lost count. But it is so far away still functioning, still sending data back built by American scientists, technicians, and engineers. How in the world did we go from that to the point where people who call themselves our leaders keep insisting on bringing in foreign programmers and foreign workers and ignoring Americans? Uh, it's disturbing. It undermines national security. It's also undermining wages for Americans. You know, it, it's interesting. If you haven't followed the news, there was a news bulletin just a little while ago. Felicity Huffman has been sentenced to spend 14 days in jail because she apparently spent $15,000 to give her daughter a false SAT score 
so that she could get into a university. And, you know, Felicity was very contrite to her credit. She acknowledged her wrongdoing, and the judge said, well, you know, being a good parent starts with being honest, teaching your children to be honest, being a good role model. I couldn't agree more. I have four children. I have three, uh, two grandchildren, and, and I, I'm, I'm the proudest parent in the world. The point of fact, I, I got to tell you this, too. My youngest son has a form of autism. He has Asperger's because of early intervention, because we didn't know what his future was going to be. And I had a fight with the Board of Education, and maybe one day I'll spend some time telling you about the battle we had with the Board of Ed. You would think they would be our allies, our partners. They would be there to help and mentor us and guide us so that our son could live the best life possible. Nothing could be further from the truth. They became our adversaries. We got what we needed for him in spite of them. I had to go to war with them, but I came fully equipped because I don't go into battle without being prepared. My name is Cutler, not Custer. Okay. But because of early intervention, my son graduated with honors with an engineering degree. And in fact, right now, as I'm doing the show, he's on a business trip as a mechanical engineer for a major corporation. I couldn't be prouder. My wife couldn't be prouder. His siblings But this all happened because of early intervention, and now funding for early intervention is being curtailed so that more money can be pumped into English as a second language. Countries like citizens and people have to make tough decisions. Where do we spend limited money? Why in the world are we willing to take money from those American children with learning disabilities to spend money on English as a second language for students who shouldn't be in the United States in the first place? I'm not being mean or evil. I'm just trying to be a good American and look out for American kids. When you look at American children living in poverty, and I got to see it up close and in person as a field agent, the neighborhoods predominantly that are populated by American minorities, the violence, the drugs, the squalor, the filth, bullets whizzing by their windows at night, and these kids grow up hopeless, and they find that the only solution to get out of that grinding poverty isn't school, but to commit crime. They get introduced to the criminal element early on because of the situation that we've allowed to fester in those terrible crime-ridden neighborhoods. And instead of being concerned about lifting up American children who live in poverty, and in fact, there was an interesting article that said that when you live in poverty, your IQ is diminished, I think they said by 13 points. That's significant. But we don't seem to care. My second oldest son has a master's degree and teaches early education to children with learning disabilities, and he's frustrated beyond words. They don't get the resources that they desperately need to help these kids who are at risk. Why is that? And the judge and the commentators were all saying that well-intentioned as Felicity Huffman might have been, by artificially inflating her daughter's SAT score, she bumped another student who was, you know, more qualified. How unfair is that to that student, whoever he or she might be, that Felicity Huffman's daughter, because she spent that $15,000, displaced that, that student who should have been in that, in that slot at that university? And I agree. That's exactly right. But isn't that what we're doing with dreamers? Oh, my gosh, these poor kids. Well, I agree. They're poor kids, but there's poor Americans. We never hear about the Americans. If it's not an imported model, we don't want to hear about it. How many actors and actresses go halfway across the world to adopt some child living in a third world country when all they have to do is go halfway across town and find an American child living in a broken family or living on foster care or living in an orphanage? Why don't those kids get the same damn attention? Why is that? Why is that? Are we self-hating as Americans that we don't care about our fellow American children this is lunacy if it doesn't infuriate you get psychological counseling because you have serious mental illness i'll tell you right up front i don't see an argument against what i've just said i really don't and if you disagree with me that's fine we can agree to disagree charity begins at home no rational reasonable parent would give money to charity if they couldn't feed and clothe their own children In fact, if they did give significant money to charity and then failed to clothe and feed their kids, they'd lose custody of those children as being unfit parents. It's not that we shouldn't help the world. We should. But, you know, we get on airplanes, and the first thing they tell you when they do that little spiel about how to put on a seatbelt is, though God knows how to put on a seatbelt, is 
difficult task. Maybe members of Congress would have a problem figuring it out. But they also say if the oxygen mask comes down, put yours on before you try to help someone else, because if you're unconscious, you're not going to be helping anybody. You're going to become another victim and another person that needs help. America needs the oxygen mask. American citizens need the damn oxygen mask. And when I could hear all this blather on television today about Felicity Hoffman's daughter bumping another student, why don't we see it where dreamers and, and, and all other aliens who come into the country and we trip over ourselves to give them benefits we don't give to American kids, particularly American children who live in poverty? You know, it, it may be startling to my conservative friends because I don't consider myself a conservative. I consider myself to be a centrist Democrat that doesn't exist anymore. I'm, a, I'm part of the, an endangered or non-existent species, an extinct species. But my gosh, I, I do agree with free college for, for American children. American children. I'll say it again. American children. American children with a proviso that they study a course of studies in a necessary field so that they can then take a job that we need. You know, how many people joined the Navy or the Air Force and learned to become pilots, and then they sign a contract that if the government is going to spend a million, two million, whatever it costs to train a fighter pilot, with the understanding they will then work as a fighter pilot for the Navy or the Marines or the Air Force, and then when their hitch is up, seven, eight, ten years, whatever the time is, then they're on their own. They can go work for the airlines, have a wonderful life, have a wonderful paycheck, and, and everybody wins. So if you want to study women's studies, you can pay for it yourself. Uh, frankly, I studied women's studies on weekends when I was a young single man. Um, I think most of my friends did, uh, trying to lighten things up a bit because I'm in a state of rage, as you might tell. But there's absolutely nothing wrong with the United States government telling American children, particularly kids living in poverty, we will be your way out of poverty. If you're willing to work hard, buckle down, get that degree in engineering or medicine or biology. And I know that there are some wealthy people who are now providing uh, free medical school for general practitioners. And I think that's fabulous. That's what we should be doing with the understanding that once you get that degree, you will commit to working in that particular industry, whatever it is, for X number of years. That's no different from what we do with people who enroll in the military. You get the training, you serve as a pilot for X number of years, and then you're on your own, and you can take all that wonderful training we've given you and take a job for the airlines, whatever it is you want to do, follow your dream, and everybody makes out, everybody wins. But this idea that we're going to flood America with foreign students to displace American kids. Think about Felicity Hoffman being punished because her daughter displaced a child. She did. That's what happened. That's really what the offense is. Yes, she lied and so forth and, and cheated, and, and that's wrong. Okay, and that's a crime. But at the end of the day, <clears throat> what's really upset people, where they said this isn't a victimless crime, because somewhere there's a student who did not get admitted to the university, because of what Felicity Hoffman did and what the others did from Hollywood. They pulled a similar stunt. And they talked about how this displaced and deprived otherwise qualified children or students from getting that seat that's limited at a university. And there should be outrage and anger over that. Okay? But again, why does no one give a rat's tail when it's Americans who get displaced by foreign students and foreign workers? It's not that we're vilifying, quote, unquote, the immigrants. All we're saying is that the immigration system needs to protect Americans. That's why those laws were enacted in the first place. It's remarkable that for several administrations, whenever they held meetings with what they called the stakeholders in immigration, they wouldn't even allow the agents to testify or to be heard. They were marched out of the room. I remember one incident under the Obama administration. The union leader that represented those civil servants was told to leave and forced out of the room. Who was there? The American Immigration Lawyers Association and all these groups that represented, quote-unquote, the immigrants, actually the illegal aliens. They were the stakeholders. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce, you know, the folks that want the cheapest labor possible, they were the stakeholders. Is this really government by the people, of the people, for the people? I'm probably doing it sideways in my anger this evening. 
But this isn't a representative democracy when the American citizens aren't considered stakeholders at a government meeting about immigration. Are you serious? Are we supposed to be that ignorant? This should enrage you because it makes my head spin like a top. Americans ought to be stakeholders of the first order here, folks. This isn't bigotry or xenophobia. It's common sense. And I'm disgusted by the garbage that's been going on for far too long. It's time we stood up to this tyranny that's being foisted on us by people who don't give a rat's tail about America or Americans, but all they care about is money. They're playing a dangerous game. And so you you look at schools and you look at the risks that we run when we allow foreign students into the United States. No one seems to care about that. And so there was an article, and to be honest, I don't remember if I mentioned it last week. If I did, forgive me for being repetitious. But here was an article, and and this was based on a um, a Washington Post article. Harvard freshman deported from airport over friends' social media posts. And the subtitle, the Harvard Crimson reported that U.S. officials detained Ishmael Ajawi for eight hours. And... It it talks about this young man who came into Boston Logan International Airport, 17-year-old Palestinian, as they describe him, from Lebanon. And when the inspectors at the port of entry, it's a job I'm intimately familiar with. I did it back in 1971 until 1975 when I became an INS special agent. Back then we were called criminal investigators. Then they changed the job title, job description to special agent. Of course, we didn't have computers to deal with back then. We didn't even have them to do the job. It's remarkable because I remember being at the airport, and one day a bunch of Japanese businessmen came in, and they were shocked that my reference material to determine whether or not to admit aliens into the United States consisted of a big blue book that we called the Lookout Book. And they they kind of laughed, and they said, where's your computer? And I said, we don't really have one. And they were stunned. You know, we want to keep thinking America is number one in everything, and, and, and we're not. We should be. Of course, now it's computerized, but back then it wasn't. And the process was about keeping out people who would take jobs or, or criminals or wanted uh, for crimes in other countries or perhaps had been previously deported from the United States or had dangerous diseases. That's still the standard. And we used to search people, if need be, strip search. We have that right at ports of entry. Under international law, you have an absolute right to do that. So the inspector at the port of entry looked at this guy's laptop computer and other devices. I'm not sure what exactly. Some of this has not been released to the public. I'm just going by publicly available information, what we call open source. And they found on his devices posts from his friends and again, they didn't go into much detail, but apparently were virulently anti-American. Then he said, well, I didn't write that. My friends did. Well, I got to tell you, if your friend wrote it and you disagreed with it, why are you walking around with, with copies of whatever these other people had to say that was hostile towards the United States? And an alien seeking entry into the United States has the burden of proof to prove that he or she does not is not one of the categories of aliens who are excludable. And that includes aliens who are basically enemies of our country. Okay? The burden of proof is on the alien, not on this, the country. We don't have to let an alien into the country. In fact, the, all this nonsense about the travel ban was never a travel ban. It was an entry restriction. The president has the, the absolute right by proclamation to deny the entry of any alien, any class of aliens, All aliens, as immigrants, non-immigrants, for as long as he believes necessary, if the president determines that their presence would be contrary to the best interests of the United States. It's just that simple. They don't have to have the Ebola virus. They don't have to be found with a nuclear weapon. All that he has to determine is that their presence in America, in in the jargon of the law that has existed since 1952 and earlier, is that their presence or their entry would be detrimental to the interests of the United States. And by extension, the inspectors can keep keep people out, aliens out, if they find reason to believe that that person poses a threat. So you have somebody coming from a country that sponsors terrorism, 
Hezbollah is based in, in Lebanon. It's a client of Iran. Iran certainly is an adversary of the United States. And on the computer is literature attacking America. And the inspectors looked at that and said, you know what, pal, you're not getting in. He had a full scholarship to go to Harvard by a Middle Eastern group. But they said, no, we're not letting you in. We believe that your presence here would be dangerous to the United States. And they sent him home. Well, the newspapers reported that this guy had been deported. He wasn't deported. We use the term removed these days. And George W. Bush did that to obfuscate how many people were really being moved out of the country. But they declared anybody who's turned around, excuse me, to be a removal, almost the same as a deportation. But when you use the term deportation, that's a specific term. That means the person had been legally admitted into the United States and then forced out of the United States. When an alien shows up at a port of entry and is not admitted, the alien can't be deported. The alien was excluded. When you deport an alien, the burden of proof is on the government of the United States. You have to be able to show a judge why you're deporting this alien. Because now the alien has a certain amount of right. Let me put it to you this way so perhaps you could understand it. I, this can be kind of arcane and difficult. Um, sometimes I, you know, I forget that I've had experience with these issues going back, I hate to say it, since 1971. So imagine you have an apartment for rent. And imagine someone comes and looks at the apartment and says, I'd like to rent the apartment. And you look at this guy and you think, gee whiz, I don't know if I really want this guy as a tenant. Does he really have the money? Uh, who is he? Where does he work? Is he reliable? You know, that, that could all go into your decision as a landlord. And you could say, you know, you don't have any visible means of support. Well, I have plenty of money. I'll pay cash. Well, you could turn around and say, gee, maybe the guy's involved with criminal activity. Why, why doesn't he, you know, I don't have a credit check on this guy. I have nothing. I have nothing to go by. And you could say to the guy, I'm not going to the apartment. But once you rent that guy the apartment and you want him or her out, now you've got to dispossess them. Now you've got to go to court. You can't just go up to some guy and say, you know, I decided I don't like you. Get out of my house. That doesn't work that way. Well, it's the same here with immigration. It's one thing to say to somebody you can't come in, and there's reasons why. It's not just a hunch. You have to have articulable facts. And the, the inspector determined that the material on the computer constituted an articulable fact, especially taking into account the country involved, which is a special interest country that's associated with terrorism. So they didn't deport him. They excluded him. But the papers called it a deportation. By the way, he was subsequently permitted back into the United States. And the president of Harvard wrote this big letter to both the attorney general and to Homeland Security explaining why this was such a terrible thing. By the way, newspaper accounts say that there's only been, I believe, three students who were denied entry in the past several years because it was believed that they posed a national security risk. Three, not 300, not 3,000, not 3 million, three. So this is done rarely, but it seemed as though the inspectors were acting appropriately. Go back to this whole thing. Why did they connect the dots? Imagine you let this kid in, and he may well be a good guy. Maybe he wants to discover a cure for cancer or autism or, or Alzheimer's. God knows. Maybe, maybe this kid will one day make great discoveries. He was here on a scholarship to study biology. But then there's Dr. Germ, so-called, if you read my article from, from this past week at Front Page, who went to England to study biology to make chemical weapons. So, you know, we have to err on the side of caution in this very dangerous era. And the president from Harvard was so incensed. Let, let me read a, a little bit of this letter, an excerpt from the letter that was published, because this is a level of naivete that I find astonishing. I mean, Harvard is one of America's premier schools, and the rankings, I think Princeton came out number one, and Harvard is number two or number three, either before or behind Yale or whatever. But this is certainly a major school. You would think that the president of such a university would really be brilliant. You know, it, it reminds me of what my parents taught me about the difference between being educated and being smart. I really don't know how smart Mr. Harvard is here. because I, I got to read this to you because it infuriated me. Harvard's president, Lawrence Bacow, 
wrote to the Secretary of State and Acting Secretary of Homeland Security last month to express his concerns about student visas and student work visas. This is a quote from the letter written by the president of Harvard University. Students report difficulties in getting initial visas from delays to denials, he wrote. Scholars have experienced postponements and disruptions for what have previously been routine immigration processes, such as family visas, renewals of status, or clearance for international travel. This year, graduates across Harvard have, been, have seen significant delays in receiving optional practical training approvals. This has hindered or endangered their postgraduate work and, in some cases, their medical residencies. Bacow wrote that, the, that he appreciates that there's a broader policy priority with regard to the security concerns, including protection of intellectual property and reporting on donations to the institution, but that visa policies mandating increased scrutiny of foreign students and scholars was raising concern. He should read the statement that Diane Feinstein made to that hearing back in 1998, don't you think? But then he goes on and says this. Academic science is open and collaborative, he wrote. While we support appropriate measures to safeguard valuable intellectual property, national defense, and sensitive emerging technologies, singling out one country and its citizens is incompatible with the culture and mission of higher education and our national ideals. Open and collaborative, you mean like nuclear secrets? I think that's what the Rosenbergs did, wasn't it? They were executed for giving nuclear secrets to Russia. It was called treason. This blind nonsense that how dare you keep out a foreign student runs contrary to common sense and national security. Don't tell me, Mr. Harvard, that you understand the need for national security, but there is no but. There is no but. Could you imagine if this young man turns around and commits an act of terror in the United States? Everyone's going to be screaming, why did they let him in? Why didn't they connect the dots? There was an inspector at the airport who did connect the dots and made a determination that Mr. Harvard didn't like. Too damn bad. Go lick your wounds elsewhere. This is about protecting America. And when you have people from other countries seeking entry into our country, our inspectors have an obligation. It is their oath that they take. Just like the oath that members of Congress and other politicians take. Just like members of the armed forces take to defend the United States. Clearly, there was concern over the posts that were seen on this student's laptop or other electronic devices. There was reason to believe that perhaps he was coming for less than honorable purposes. And that's what their job is. So when I hear this nonsense, um, you know, there, there was another case, and I wrote about it for front page, about an Iranian sleeper agent that I believe he pleaded guilty, by the way. So this isn't even where there was a trial, and you could say, well, you know, somehow he was wrongly um, convicted. He was educated at a United States university, and when he was arrested by the FBI, and I believe Homeland Security as well, he had gotten a degree in biomechanical engineering and was amassing materials to create a weapon of mass destruction that he was also recruiting like-minded terrorists. One terrorist in another case at a university jokingly said that American schools were universities for jihad. Universities for jihad. That was the statement that an undercover tape that was made of an individual under investigation who was again arrested and subsequently convicted of being a sleeper agent in the United States, calling our universities Jihad University. He, said, he, he was raving about how wonderful it was that he was getting all this great training so that he could kill us. So when you have the inspectors at the airport doing the job that we hoped they would do, to be attacked by the president of Harvard University, how dare they protect us? You know, uh, I don't know if you know this, but I, I know I've spoken about it in the past. And I don't know if you remember this, but six months to the day after 9-11, it was discovered to everybody's horror that two of the dead terrorists who participated in the 9-11 terror attack, including Mohammed Atta, the ringleader, the ringleader, had been granted authorization to attend flight school in Florida. And the flight school got that authorization letter six months to the day after the attacks. 
I had just had a fight with Anthony Weenie, which is what I used to call Weiner. My son worked for him as an intern. He treated those kids terribly. He's a reprobate. As far as I'm concerned, he's a sociopath. He should still be in jail as far as I'm concerned. And I got into this big argument with him. I was the president of the Parents Association of my daughter's public school. I was home with an injured leg. I screwed up my knee executing arrest and search warrants with the FBI and the New York City Police Department. Uh, so I wasn't on duty on 9-11 because of that injury. It was the third time I got hurt on the job. No big deal. That's what you sign up for. You could lose your life enforcing the laws. Um, the squeamish need not apply. But the point was I needed to be able to stay active and, and productive. I can't sit on my backside. I still can't. I never want to be completely retired. I, everybody needs to wake up in the morning with a sense of purpose, with a mission that needs to be accomplished. So I was the president of my daughter's public school, the, the PA uh, Parents Association of the, my, my daughter's public school. And I went to this breakfast, and there were all the politicians there. And there's Wiener, and I tried to approach him, and he waved me off, and he said, Mr. Cutler, I don't have the time for this. Uh, we can't stop those students, and on and on and on. And I was furious. And the smell from 9-11, that stench still hung in the air from that cauldron at Ground Zero six months after the attacks. All that oil, all that petroleum from the airplanes and so forth was still smoldering. The smell permeated the I hope I never smell that stench again. It was, it was, if there's hell, I'm sure that's what hell must smell like. And I drove home, and as I was getting near my driveway, my phone rang, and I got a call from the chief Democrat counsel for the House Immigration Subcommittee. Sheila Jackson Lee at the time was the ranking Democrat. And Leon Buck called me up. I didn't recognize the phone number. I had one of those dumb phones in those days. I saw a 202 number. I picked up the phone. I said, who is this? Is this Mr. Cutler? I said, yes. He said, America needs you in Washington next week, next week, Mr. Cutler. Will you come? And I thought it was a goof. I didn't think it was serious. I said, who is this? And he told me who he was. And he said, are you aware of the fact that two of the dead terrorists just got authorization to go to flight school? Folks, I almost crashed into the tree in the front of my driveway. I stopped my car in the middle of the street. I, I just stopped. And I said, run this by me again. And he did. And I got my car across the driveway. I couldn't even park. I was vibrating. I ran into the house, called him back on a landline. Because if you remember in those days, you know, they would charge you like $10 a minute or something obscene for using your cell phone. And I wanted something more secure to have this conversation as well. And I was on the phone with him for a couple, I, I'm going to think it was a couple hours. The time just went by quickly. They said, will you come testify? I did. That hearing is part of the permanent library for C-SPAN. You can watch the hearing. I was there. I brought my two oldest sons with me. It was astonishing. We had no idea how this could have happened. And all the promises made by all those members of Congress, thumping the table, and we must never allow this to happen. And when we let students into the country, we don't know who the hell they are. And on and on and on and on. And we've forgotten it. You Maybe you didn't. I'll be honest. I didn't watch it yesterday. I did not watch it. I confess. But have you heard anybody even talk about the 9-11 Commission? 18 years after 9-11, which means that people are now coming of age. American citizens are now coming of age, able to vote in the next election, who will have been born after the attacks. Those of us who were adults on 9-11 or old enough in any event to remember 9-11 will never forget what it was about. I can never forget the day that Kennedy was assassinated. I can never forget the day the Challenger blew up as it was launched on that cold day against the best advice of NASA's engineers because a political decision had been made. I will never forget when Space Shuttle Columbia disintegrated, returning from orbit. I certainly will never forget 9-11. And so here we're in a situation where you have people running for the presidency advocating open borders, and no one is saying to them, how does what you propose square with the findings and recommendations of the 9-11 Commission? How does that happen? By the way, if you want to talk about students who create problems, we'll give you another story. The Ohio Star, and this was last year. I happened to trip over this as I was doing some, some more research. Here's the headline from the Ohio Star, October 27, 2018. 
Headline, authorities, Muslim migrant in Ohio tried to get ISIS training and start, quote, a civil war, unquote, in the United States. This guy was 19 years old, born in Iraq. He became a United States citizen and had studied in the United States. And they, they believed, but they weren't sure that he entered as a refugee. And he was arrested by the FBI because he wanted to... Uh, to go to, I believe it was Iraq. Uh, bear with me one moment. Forgive me. Yeah, he wanted to board, uh, to join the Peshmergan militia in northern Iraq, get his training, and come back to America to use his training. This is what we are continually confronting. This isn't a, gee whiz, this might happen. I've spoken before about Hezbollah, according to congressional testimony, Hezbollah, Again, it's armed and directed by Iran, is working with human and narcotic smuggling organizations throughout Latin America, often one and the same, to move drugs and people into the United States, in part to raise money for international terrorism and also to be able to embed sleeper agents in the United States. Have you heard anybody during any of these so-called debates say to any one of these nitwits, how do you protect America when you have people present in the country and we have no idea who in blazes they are? Chuck Schumer wanted a law two or three years ago that would make trespassing on critical infrastructure or national landmarks a five-year felony. He said, you know, in New York, the worst you face is a year in jail. You probably only get a few months. It's not enough of a deterrent. People who trespass, especially in this era of terrorism, pose a serious threat, and we need to stop it immediately. And the best way to stop it is to impose punishments that are serious enough. And on his official Senate website, he even talked about a 16-year-old boy. He used the word boy. I didn't. He did. 16-year-old boy who climbed the World Trade Center under construction, the Freedom Tower, as some had come to call it, to take photographs. And he said, I don't care if you're an adrenaline junkie or a criminal. You do that, you're posing a threat, you need to go to jail for five years. Wow. Wow. Could you argue that someone who runs the border is not trespassing on the United States? So the Senate major minority leader who wants to put trespassers, even when they're 16 years old, in a jail for five years for trespass, says that there is no emergency on the southern border? that it's make-believe, says it's disgusting. Why are we using military money for this? They're trying to block the border wall yet again. We have universities complaining that the inspectors at a port of entry look at somebody who's a citizen of a country that sponsors terrorism, coming to the United States to study biology, something that Feinstein warned about back in 1998. She specifically mentioned biology as one of those causes of study that we've got to be careful about because we could be teaching them how to make biological weapons. You may not remember this, but the PFLP, the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, it was kind of a sister organization to the PLO, was headed up by George Habash, who was a pediatrician. Just because someone's a doctor doesn't mean that they're not evil. We are naive and stupid, and it's almost as though we have a death wish as a country. And most people will say to me, oh, aren't, aren't you worried that people are going to accuse you of being a terrible person? You know, Arlen Specter, when I testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee, the late Arlen Specter, said that people that want those borders secured suffer from exophobia. And I almost broke up laughing. I'm thinking, my God, does he think I'm afraid of the letter X? And then he corrected himself and said xenophobia. Clearly, he hadn't even written his own statement, but most of them don't. Most of them are too damn lazy. They're too busy fundraising. Fundraising, yes, that's a polite term for pandering for bribes. Fundraising. You know, if somebody gives a politician 100 bucks because they find out they're running for office, you don't expect anything for 100 bucks. Certainly not with inflation. It doesn't get you too far. But when you write a check for tens of thousands of dollars, you're expecting something. What are you expecting? That they're going to do their job? No, you're expecting that you're going to have access so you can twist their arm to get them to do something that they really don't want to do. This is prostitution of the worst kind. Let me tell you, they're not selling their bodies. They're selling America's future and security and the future and security of our citizens. 
that's far worse than what a prostitute or a pimp does in my judgment. And I don't give a damn which party you want to talk about. I mean, let's get serious. Um, I, I wrote an article or actually remarks not that long ago. I was in Washington to give a speech. And I, I knew that there were going to be politicians in the audience. And, and, and really, there's very few politicians I have much use for. And I've dealt with quite a few. And, yeah, there are a few good guys, few and far between, very few and very far between. And I don't care what party you're talking about. I don't care if they're members of the Hopping Kangaroo Party. They all seem to be of the same ilk. But what's so remarkable was I, I, I just had to zing them. And I, I find that humor can, can sometimes be a pretty effective weapon. So when I delivered my remarks at the speech, there were probably close to 1,000 people in the audience. I came up with the similarities between the two oldest professions. It just seemed so appropriate. And I enjoyed watching the politicians in the audience squirm. To me, that's kind of a fun sport, watch them squirm. So here's my comparison of the two oldest professions. Both professions begin with the letter P. Both professions involve lots of people getting screwed. In both professions, the practitioners will assume any position, no matter how ridiculous or uncomfortable or contrary to common sense, for the right price. In prostitution, the clientele bring their fantasies that the prostitute tries to fulfill in politics, the constituents bring their concerns, and the politicians respond by making promises they fulfill by creating fantasies. STDs can give the clients of prostitutes a case of buyer's remorse or perhaps a case of something more serious, while voters may as well suffer buyer's remorse when they come to find out what their elected official actually does once he or she is sworn into office. Talk about the gift that keeps on giving. That's what we're dealing with. But where are the journalists? Where are those hard-hitting questions? How can you say to these politicians who want to be the commander-in-chief of our armed forces, how in the world do you protect the country? And then, of course, they always throw down, what the president is doing is unconstitutional. How dare he? It's against our values. Unconstitutional to secure your borders. So let's look at the Constitution, folks. Specifically, one of my favorite sections as an immigration agent, Article 4, Section 4. Here's what it says. The United States shall guarantee to every state in this union a Republican form of government and shall protect each of them against invasion. And on application of the legislature or of the executive when the legislature cannot be convened against domestic violence. Domestic violence. Think about the gangs. Think about the drugs. Think about the threat of terrorism hanging over our head, not unlike the sword of Damocles. By the way, invasion, here's the definition. An incursion by a large number of people or things into a place or sphere of activity, an unwelcome intrusion into another's domain. I think when you have millions of people pouring across our border, folks, you have an invasion. Now, I also want you to understand what the media is not telling you and what the administration is not telling you. The caravans seem to have subsided. I saw a statement that the number of illegals being caught is less than half what it was at the peak. Wow, I'm really impressed because they were catching well over 100,000 at the peak, so maybe we're down to 50,000 now. 19 hijackers on 9-11 killed more people on that day than did the entire Japanese fleet kill at Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941. And we always hear about 3,000. What about the 20,000 more who have since become ill and some of whom have died and more people are signing up to be treated and more people are suffering? We're losing roughly one first responder per month or more than that, a minimum of that because of their exposure to the toxins when the towers disintegrated, when the airplanes hit them. So by now we're talking about, you know, far more than 3,000, all because of 19 individuals. ABC News reported, this was two years ago, that 6,000-plus students from countries that sponsor terrorism, just like our friend the biology major, were admitted into the United States and went missing, and immigration had no resources to look for them. 
So here's what you're not hearing from the administration, and certainly not the media, and certainly not those sharp-witted, my goodness gracious, so-called journalists who are moderating the alleged debate. The Bahamas was hammered by this hurricane. The sun is out, although now they're saying that there might be another storm headed their way. God forbid. I hope it misses them. Um, I, I was in Freeport many, many years ago. It's a beautiful place to be, but it's been reduced to rubble. But the sun is out. The, you know, no more rain, no more wind. Beautiful, beautiful sunshine. Such a pleasure. So is everything hunky-dory in the Bahamas? Absolutely not. I'm a New Yorker. When Sandy hit New York, my basement flooded. Not far from my home, a, a, a guy I don't know, but I read about it, went down to his basement, and the water rushed in so quickly that he drowned in his own basement because the water went up to the ceiling before he could get out. We had cars stacked on top of cars throughout my neighborhood. My wife's friend said that they went out in the middle of the storm, and the water rushed into the garage. The garage doors burst open. And the family car went floating down the street, not to be found until days later. And, of course, it was ruined. So the hurricane came and went. Was New York okay right after Sandy? Is the Bahamas okay now that the sun is out? No. How many years did it take New York and New Jersey to, to do the repairs after Sandy? You want me to tell you something? Some of that repair work is still ongoing, and it's been how many years? Now, we were inundated by a human tsunami along the southern border. By the way, let's not forget the Canadian border. Let's not forget the aliens who come in through international airports and disappear because they committed visa fraud or lied to the inspector. Certainly none of the 19 hijackers who came through ports of entry when asked, what's the purpose for your visit? I don't think any of them said to the inspector, oh, I'm here to use an airliner as a cruise missile and fly into a tall building. I don't think that was the answer they gave, but I could be mistaken. What do I know? So we're inundated from every angle, every day, 24-7, and who's going to clean up the mess? You know, serve pro-advertisers that after the storm, they'll help you clean up and make it so like it never happened. There is no serve pro for the United States. We have 6,000 immigration agents. More than half of them aren't doing immigration work. So effectively, we have 3,000 immigration agents. This past New Year's Eve, the New York City Police Department assigned roughly 6,000 cops to secure Times Square. Think about that. 6,000 cops at one time in one place to provide security, and we have 6,000 ICE agents for the whole country, and they work 24-7 with days off and vacation and sick leave, and half of them aren't doing immigration work. So who's going to clean up the mess? Nobody. And how big a mess? You wouldn't believe it if I told you, because among the people who've rushed the border, aren't only people from Latin America, and among them you may have criminals and terrorists and and, and people who are involved with the drug trade and fugitives from justice, but we also have aliens from all over the world coming across the Mexican border, what are known as OTMs, other than Mexican. And many of them may decide, well, now that I'm here, the best way to stay here is get married. They may commit marriage fraud. Marriage fraud was identified by the 9-11 Commission, to which I provided testimony, as the key method of entry and embedding by terrorists. Can we adjudicate those applications? We're going to have to. Will there be the capacity to do field investigations and interview them in person? No. What's the likelihood they will commit fraud? Well, if you look at the DREAMers, because they weren't interviewed, the approval rate was well over 95%. Over 95%. They all had to claim they came in before they were 16 and on and on and on. There was no way to do field investigations. We don't know who they are. There was no record created of their entry. There's no way to prevent somebody who's 30 years old of walking into an immigration office and saying, oh, I've been living here for the past 15 years, so I got here when I was 15. I was, it was before my 16th birthday. I'm qualified. of those applications were approved. The courts are now so backed up that if an alien is arrested and needs to see a judge, the judge won't be able to see them probably for three or four years. That's the damage that was done. We have no resources. So, yes, maybe, just maybe, there's no more caravans. Maybe the numbers were cut in half. Let me tell you what. If tomorrow morning they made the border airtight, 
it'll probably take 30 years, if ever, to clean up the mess created by this massive onslaught. Are you hearing that anywhere? No. What does that do to our schools? How many more children are going to need English as a second language? Critical infrastructure from our cities is overwhelmed. Our hospitals are overwhelmed. And who benefits by this? Everybody but the average American. Immigration lawyers are thrilled to death because that massive tsunami need immigration lawyers. This is a guaranteed employment program for attorneys. That's why they want comprehensive immigration reform, not to get them out of the shadows, to get them into the waiting rooms of the law firms. And you have Republicans as well as Democrats who are immigration lawyers. Nobody's talking about the inability the United States has to clean up the mess created by that massive onslaught. And what are the Democrats offering us now? Let's decriminalize immigration law violations. How brilliant. But let's put people that trespass on critical infrastructure in a jail for five years. The lunacy that's being foisted on America and Americans won't just affect us. It won't just affect our children. Folks, this is going to affect our grandchildren and probably their children as well when they come of age. America is at a turning point. This turning point was artificially created by politicians from both parties who are as crooked as they come, who are as immoral as they come. I remember when my son, my youngest, was graduating from the special school that he was able to get into because we were successful. Thank God we were. The school did such an incredible job. Those teachers are my heroes. They will always be my heroes. And they announced at the graduation ceremony that there were no elected officials to speak. There was a standing ovation. When have you ever seen it where the American people so hate their own government the way they do today? The hatred runs deep. And what I worry about is when I took some classes in political science, they said that when a country loses political legitimacy, when a government loses political legitimacy, revolution may follow. We're living in a very dangerous era. We're being threatened by China. We're being threatened by Iran. We're being threatened by the drug cartels, by terrorist organizations. All Wall Street can focus on is how our trade war with China is affecting their quarterly profits. All they talk about is profits. We're in a battle for survival. China is a communist totalitarian country that is hell-bent on world domination. You could see the handwriting on the wall. The train is coming. The, sh- tr- tr- the tracks are rattling. You can see the smoke from the train. And our leaders can't figure out that this is an existential threat to America and to our freedoms. We've lost our minds. And as Americans, we've been divided by the pollsters who talk about black voters and Latino voters and Jewish voters. How in the world do you differentiate Americans that way? You want to know what divides America? It's these imbecile pollsters. It's the politicians. It's anybody who wants to make distinctions between Americans by their race, by their religion, by their ethnicity. That's not what America is supposed to be. Our country was based on the principle of e pluribus unum, out of many one, to look for common ground and common concerns and common goals and common dreams. That's what built America. That was the American dream. We've lost upward mobility because we import more foreign workers every year than the number of new jobs we're creating. Artificial intelligence will displace no more workers. And yet none of these questions are being asked of the Democratic candidates who seek the presidency. You know, it's been said, Voltaire said it, that you judge a person's intelligence by the questions that they ask. I don't think those journalists are particularly intelligent, but that's just my opinion. I thank you for joining me this evening. I I hope that you all have a wonderful weekend coming up. But please, folks, if you like my program, let as many of your friends know about it. Let them know about the podcasts. Check out my articles at frontpagemag.com. I also have been working with Dennis Michael Lynch at dmlnews.com and Team DML. And, of course, as always, my own personal website, michaelcutler.net. Be part of my bucket brigade of truth, and please get involved, folks. Democracy is not a spectator sport. I look forward to seeing you again next week, right at the same time, right here on the Michael Cutler Hour. So long for now.